Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church. I'm glad you've chosen to worship here with us. I hope you had a happy Valentine's Day, whether you celebrated it with someone or whether you celebrated it with yourself. I hope you had a happy Valentine's Day. You still should embrace the holiday of buying candy and flowers and stuff like that. But last week we started a new sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We covered chapter one, the entire chapter, verses one through twenty three. And we talked about how in Christ, we are given a completely new identity. Paul is writing to a group of believers. Many of them, presumably, are relatively new believers. And so Paul is helping them to discover the new identity that they've been given in Christ. He uses words like chosen, holy, adopted, redeemed, enlightened, heirs, and sealed. He makes it clear that these new people are not just improved versions of their old selves. They're not just cleaned up versions who cuss a little bit less or a little bit more nice or a little bit more polite. He makes it clear that these people are completely new. They are not the same people they were before. But Paul doesn't stop there by just talking about the new identity that all of these individuals have been given. He makes it clear that these individuals are meant to be together. He talks about the church and the church is the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church and how all of these people with these new identities, when they come together, that's what makes up the church. It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not a hierarchy. At the bare bones, what makes up the church is a bunch of people. Saved by the grace of God coming together. These people belong together. And the only thing better than one person whose identity has been changed by God's grace is a bunch of people whose identities have been changed by God's grace. Now, with that, we pick up in Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. We pick up in verses 1 through 22. You know, it sounds nice to say that all of these new identity people belong together. On paper, that sounds pretty good. But what about when the rubber hits the road? Because a lot of these people are very, very, very different. Sure, they all believe in Jesus. Sure, they've all been saved by God's grace. But is that really enough for them to function as a group, to function as a community? What if they don't have much in common? Not only that, what if they not only don't have much in common, what if there are people who have a history of rivalry or a history of division? Or what if there are old grudges or old dissensions that exist between all these different people? Is it really possible? Is it realistic for these new identity people to come together and be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another? Now, If you pay attention to the news, you may have recently heard that there have been steps taken to essentially restore diplomatic relations between Cuba and the United States. I'm no foreign policy expert, but from what I've read, there's been an embargo on Cuba since 1961. And as a result of this embargo, there is this high amount of tension This high amount of stress between these two countries and this embargo led to a ban on travel to and from Cuba. It also led to restrictions on trade, restrictions on other economic partnerships, all because of the Castro communist regime. 
There's been this embargo. There's been this separation. There's been this tension between these two countries that are so close together. And while there's still a really long way to go before these two countries can have a really good, fruitful, productive relationship, the steps that have been taken so far, they're a start. They could go a long way towards reconciliation. Now, if this happens, if these two countries are fully reconciled, that would have a pretty big impact on individual people. There are people living in Cuba. There are people living in the United States who would be incredibly impacted by this type of reconciliation. But at the same time, a reconciliation of that magnitude, two countries coming together and restoring relationships, that would have a massive ripple effect. One small example, I'm a baseball fan, many of you know that already, but in the world of baseball, there are many Cuban players who have never been able to show their talents at the highest level. Because if you were a Cuban baseball player and you wanted to go to the major leagues, you basically had to sneak out under the cover of night. You had to potentially leave your family and your friends behind just so you could chase your dreams of being a major league player. As a result, many of these Cuban baseball players never got the chance to play at the highest level of Major League Baseball. And if this reconciliation happens, it's not just going to affect a few people in Cuba or a few people in the United States. It's going to affect all of Major League Baseball as these teams go out and try to sign these Cuban players. And the point I'm getting at is this. When a reconciliation of massive magnitude happens, there is a big ripple effect. People begin to take notice. And it doesn't just stay at reconciliation between those two parties. Other people are affected by it as well. Now, the same can be said of our reconciliation to God through Jesus. It doesn't just affect one little corner of our lives. It doesn't just affect my personal relationship with God. There's a much bigger ripple effect because true reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with one another. It leads to reconciliation with our fellow believers, even though we may be very, very different, even though there may be grudges, even though there may be sordid pasts, even though there may be rivalries. Reconciliation affects not just our standing with God, but it affects our standing with one another. Jesus's blood reconciles us to God and one another. So with that, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter two, verses one through twenty two. If you are using one of our chair Bibles, this is located on page eight hundred thirty six. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we read Ephesians chapter two, let's pray together. And then we'll get started. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of coming into your house. Thank you that many of us from different walks of life, many of us from different experiences, different personalities, all kinds of different things, God, that we can worship you under one roof. And God, I pray that as we consider what it is that you've done for us and how you've reconciled us to yourself, I pray that we can see more clearly what that means for our relationships to one another. God, I pray that you'll speak to each of us as you see fit through your word. God, some of us are here in the midst of joy and success, and some of us are here in the midst of sorrow and pain. And God, I pray that every single one of us will hear what it is that you would have us hear. 
that you would give us ears that are willing to hear that. And God, I pray that you would comfort, guide, encourage, convict. God, whatever it is that you see fit for your word to do in each of our hearts. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this time that we have together as a family in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of disobedience, excuse me, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul starts out chapter two by reminding his audience, again, many of them Gentiles, most likely mostly Gentiles, but surely some Jews are there, too. He reminds these believers of who they once were in Christ or rather who they once were apart from Christ. And Paul makes it clear that you were in a very, very bad state of affairs before you were given this new identity in Christ. If Paul had to use one word to sum up who you were before you knew Christ, the word that he would use is dead. You were once dead apart from Christ. You were dead because of your sin, because of your transgression, because of your rebellion. I recently read a story about Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham was a British philosopher born in the 1700s, died in the 1800s. And legend has it that when Jeremy Bentham died, he gave his estate to University College Hospital in London. And he gave this sizable estate on one condition. If you wanted the estate, his body was to be preserved and placed in attendance at all hospital board meetings. Seriously, not making it up. You can Google it. Jeremy Bentham wanted to be at these meetings. Now, contrary to popular belief, his body does not attend every single board meeting. But believe it or not, he did attend one in 2013. They have his body preserved. They take it out of a case. They sit it up at the table. They put clothes on it. He has a hat and everything. And they have a little name tag in front of him that says Jeremy Bentham. But he's also identified as present but not voting. Present but not voting. That makes sense. And the truth is that Jeremy Bentham won't be voting again. Whether you bring him up to the table, whether you sit him there, whether he has a name tag, whether you call out his name, he's not going to vote. Because Jeremy Bentham is truly dead. He's been dead for over 150 years. He can't vote. He doesn't have the possibility, the capability of voting. And in the same way, when we were once left to our sin, like Jeremy Bentham, we were dead. We were not responding. There was no pulse there because of the sin in our hearts. Paul says that we were once following the world, that we were once following the prince of the air, a name for Satan. Paul says that we were living by the flesh. We may have looked like we were alive. We may have been walking. We may have been talking. But deep down, just like Jeremy Bentham, we were completely and utterly dead. Paul talks about 
what it looks like to live by the flesh, what it looks like to be dead in your sin in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 19. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says that when we were in that old state before we knew Christ, we were dead. We were children of wrath, destined for punishment, destined for wrath, destined for complete and utter and eternal separation from God. Back to that Jeremy Bentham example, you might say that back then we were dead men walking. We looked alive, we were talking, we were walking, but we were dead. And we were destined for wrath. Now, that sounds kind of bad. That sounds kind of sobering because it is bad and it is sobering. But then Paul picks up in verse four. He shifts gears a little bit in Ephesians chapter two. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul changes gears. He stops focusing on who you were before you were given this new identity in Christ. And now he shifts to who you are now. If the old one word description of who you were was dead, then the new one word description of who you are now is alive. You once were dead, but now you're alive. Jesus says something similar in John chapter five, verse 24. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. If you've been given a new identity in Christ by the grace of God, you're no longer destined for wrath. You're no longer destined for eternal separation. You're no longer destined for eternal death. You are destined for glory. We are blessed now with grace. And we look forward to the day when we will see even more clearly the full riches of God's grace that is offered to us in Christ. Now, that's a pretty big change to go from dead to alive. Imagine you're in one of those hospital board meetings. You're a board member at University College Hospital in London. And yeah, you get the whole thing. You know, you understand the tradition of, oh, we're going to bring up Jeremy Bentham's body. He's going to sit at the table and he's present but not voting. Oh, that's real cute. Kind of creepy, but okay, cute. And you're going along with it. And then all of a sudden they call out a vote. People go around the table. People vote. And out of the corner of your eye, you see Jeremy Bentham's hand raise. You'd probably take notice of that. It's a pretty big deal to go from dead to alive physically. In the same way, it is a huge deal to go from dead to alive spiritually. How could something like this happen? 
This is a huge change. Well, Paul talks about how it happened, starting in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're brought to life by God's grace. We're brought to life by God's grace through faith in Jesus. This salvation is not our doing. It is God's doing. None of us can boast because it is a pure and unmerited gift. Salvation is not found in, well, you know, I know I'm not perfect, but I try really hard. Salvation is not found in, well, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. That's not where salvation is found. Salvation is found as a gift of God's grace that we could never earn, that none of us could boast or brag that we found it because we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Now, what does that lead to? What comes as a result of this new salvation? What comes as a result of this being made alive when we were once dead? Well, Paul says, now that you're alive, know this, that you were created for good works. You're expected to walk in these good works. But this isn't just because you're trying really hard to look a little bit more like Jesus. This isn't just because you sit back and say, well, if I say I'm a follower of Jesus now and I really am a fan of consistency, then I guess I better straighten my act up a little bit. That's not how it works. We walk in good works because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Remember that Galatians chapter 5 passage where Paul says this is who you were before you were marked by all of these things? Well, Paul continues in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Paul makes it clear you were once marked by these things, but because you've been given this new identity, because I've given you my spirit, now you're marked by these things. You're a completely different person. And it doesn't just change your standing. It doesn't just change your label in the eyes of God. It changes who you are completely. So much so that people around you take notice. There is a visible effect because of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. We're characterized by new traits. We're characterized by new habits and new practices, not because we want to make sure that we stay out of God's doghouse, but because he's given us the spirit and the spirit bears fruit. So at one time we were dead, but now we're alive. At one time we were destined for punishment and wrath, but now we're destined for glory. 
We once were walking by the world. We once were following Satan. We were once driven by our sinful flesh. But now we walk by the spirit. Every single part of this is from God's grace because Jesus's blood has reconciled us to him by grace through faith in what Jesus has done. Now, that all sounds pretty good. But again, this seems pretty focused on the individual. It's all about I, 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 me, me, me. I was dead. Now I'm alive. I was lost. Now I'm found. I was destined for wrath, but now I'm destined for glory. As great as that stuff is, how does this come back to the church? How does this come back to our relationship with one another? Paul picks up in verse 11. He says there, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul focuses back in on those Gentile people and his audience, and he reminds them of who they were specifically before they knew Christ. He says they were orphans. He says that Christ meant nothing to them. They knew nothing of Jesus. He says, you know what? You weren't even Jewish. You didn't even have that to fall back on to claim that you were saved or to claim that you were in right standing with God. In other words, you were completely and utterly hopeless. But now, again, you've been reconciled to God. You're no longer orphans. You are children. You are no longer far off. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, imagine yourself in the shoes of one of the Jewish people who might be hearing this letter read. You're thinking to yourself that at one time, your bloodline was special. At one time, you thought that your family, that your race, you were the only ones who could truly call God father because Abraham is your ancestor. Now, all of a sudden, you're hearing Paul preach this stuff about how Gentiles can know God, too, through the blood of Christ. You're hearing Paul say that these Gentiles can now be called children of God. That's got to be a little bit concerning. It's a complete change of everything you believed and everything that you knew. But let's say that you're open to these new ideas. Maybe you say to yourself, you know what? Yeah, it's good that these Gentile people can know God now. I'm happy for them. That's all well and good for them. But deep down, you're still kind of thinking that they're not really on your level. They're still just a little bit different. There's still just that tiny bit of separation that separates these two groups of people. Yeah, sure. Maybe they're saved. Yeah, sure. Maybe they can call God father through what Jesus has done. But you still don't really want to get all buddy buddy with them. You still don't want to get too close to these people, because no matter what they do, no matter what Paul says, they're still Gentiles, and they can't change that. 
Well, Paul understands that people might be thinking that. He picks up in verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. Now, this is where Paul might be taking things a little bit too far for those who call themselves Jewish. Paul says that Christ has made them one. It's as simple as that. They're no longer two different groups of people. They're not two different groups of people who are still very, very, very different, but just happen to worship the same God. Paul says, no, you are one. And Paul says that the metaphorical barrier between these two groups of people has been torn down. He says that the hostility has been killed. He says that both groups of people have access to God on the same grounds, and that's the Holy Spirit. But maybe the most controversial, maybe the most mind-blowing thing that Paul says here is that God has created in himself one new man in place of the two. Jesus' blood doesn't just reconcile us to God. Jesus' blood reconciles us to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how different we might be. Now, at this time, Jews went to the temple to worship. That's primarily where they did their worship. That's where they did their sacrifices. That's where they did offerings, all kinds of different things. All happened at the temple. The temple was a sacred, a holy, a revered place. And Gentiles were welcome at the temple with some condition. The one condition is that they had their own little courtyard. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. Really clever marketing by whoever came up with that name. But it was called the Court of the Gentiles. You could come to the temple. You could see the temple. You could maybe even do a little bit of your own worshiping. But stay in your space. Stay away from us. There's still that separation. There's still that wall. Now, Paul makes it clear that that wall, that separation is broken down. And before you say, now wait a minute, wait a minute, let's not throw the Jewish people under the bus here. At least they allow the Gentiles to come. At least they allow the Gentiles to be at the temple. Well, with that logic, you could say, well, let's not throw the southern restaurant owner in the 1960s under the bus. I mean, he still let African-American people eat at his restaurant. He just gave them their own little space. He's not that bad. That's not how it works. They are clearly viewed as second class citizens. And Paul says, no, these are not second class citizens. These old distinctions, these old grudges, these old rivalries, they no longer have any place in the church because God has created in himself one new man. 
No matter how different these people are, no matter how deep the differences run, every single one of us has been saved by the grace of God. And Jesus' blood has reconciled us to God just as powerfully as it has reconciled us to one another. Paul closes out the passage in chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul looks at this ragtag bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ who have little to nothing in common. And Paul uses three different words to describe them, three different terms to describe them. He says that they're family members in the household of God, even though their bloodlines are very different. He calls them the temple where God dwells through the Holy Spirit, Jesus being the cornerstone of the temple, the thing that holds this temple together in spite of all the differences. But then Paul also calls them something else. He calls them citizens, people who live in a city, family members, temple, city. Now, as I read that, I thought about what Jesus had to say about cities in Matthew chapter five. Jesus says that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. God is doing something in the midst of these people with these new identities. He's doing something in their individual lives, but he's also doing something in them as a group. Because God is not content having simply reconciled these people to him. He's also reconciled them to one another. But why? When we talked about the United States and Cuba, we talked about how a reconciliation of that magnitude has a ripple effect. People take notice when that kind of reconciliation occurs. It's the same way with our reconciliation to God. People take notice of a reconciliation that big. People take notice when a group of a hundred people can gather together on a Sunday morning who have nothing in common except Jesus. People take notice of that kind of reconciliation. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now we'll talk more about that next week. What that looks like to be that city on a hill. What people should see in our reconciliation to God and our reconciliation to one another. But for now, I want to leave you with this. The reminder that the blood of Christ reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to one another. And I'd also like to challenge you to consider what it looks like for you to be reconciled to brothers and sisters in Christ. Consider the differences. Consider the rivalries. Consider the divisions. Consider the cliques. Consider the wrongs that may have been committed. Consider what sins may need to be forgiven or what sins may need to be confessed. Consider what disagreements may need to be talked out or what disagreements may need to just be simply gotten over. 
Because God has not just reconciled us to him through Jesus' blood. God has reconciled us to one another. And a place where 100 people from different places and different backgrounds and different ideas and opinions and personalities, a place like that, that place will shine like a city on a hill. And I pray that we can be that city on that hill. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've reconciled us to one another. God, I'm sure there are people among us who don't get along that well, who have very different opinions, very different thoughts, very different experiences. But God, it truly is humbling that you can bring us all together in spite of those differences. And God, I pray that we can little by little resemble more of what Paul talks about in this chapter. That little by little we can more resemble family members in the same household. That we can resemble more of a temple being built together with your son Jesus as the cornerstone. I pray that we can more resemble a city. And that we can be the kind of city that shines on a hill. That people take notice. That as we have been reconciled to you, that as we reconcile to one another, that there will be a massive ripple effect. That those who know us, that those who come here, that those who worship here would notice that reconciliation. Would see that as clear as day, not just because we're trying really hard to get along, but God, because your spirit is bearing fruit in our hearts as individuals and your spirit is bearing fruit in us as a community. God, thank you that we've been saved by your grace. Thank you that none of us can boast. Thank you that this is not our doing, that this is your doing. God, I pray that we might never forget that truth of our faith. God, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if you're not sure if you've been given a new identity in Christ, as you look at Paul's two groups, those who are dead and those who are alive. If you're not sure what category you fall into, I pray that you talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you. They'd be happy to answer questions that you might have. They'd be happy to guide you through the pages of Scripture, to show you what it means to be a follower of Christ, to show you what it means to place your faith in Christ, to show you what it means to say with confidence that you have been saved by God's grace. If you're not sure where you stand in those categories, I pray that you would consider it with one of our elders. If you have interest in being a member of this specific household of God here on this corner, I pray that you talk to one of those guys as well. And I pray that we can be reconciled to God and that we can continue to be reconciled to one another day in and day out.